I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. It is week three of Billy Wilder Month. Uh, we are going to be discussing the 1961 film 123, of which the music uh, you just heard, uh, the Saber Dance, is a very major part. Yep. Before we discuss this film, however, we're going to recap briefly the uh, interval in the career of Billy Wilder between our last film, Witness for the Prosecution, and this film. There's only two films removed. Uh, so the last film was 57. This was 61. In between, Wilder directed Some Like It Hot, uh, which is considered by many, including the American Film Institute, perhaps the greatest comedy film of all time, though ironically not one of my favorite Billy Wilder films. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just too on the nose. Too many people like it, which makes me not be as inclined to like it. Yeah. It's quite solid. Uh, Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, of course... Yeah, I think its uh, reputation is deserved, uh, but it was followed by my favorite Billy Wilder film, uh, *The Apartment* uh, from 1960. Oh, yes. uh, that film. that film uh, is great. Uh, Jack Lemmon, Fred McMurray, uh, Shirley MacLaine. So it's a wonderful film. It's a satire. So it's, it's kind of a romance, but it's also a satire of the insurance industry and of just modern times, being the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, whereas this film is a satire of the Cold War, and we will get into that in more detail. I'm going to do a little comparison. So uh, The Apartment was a huge hit. It was made for $3 million. It grossed $24.6 million at the U.S. box office. Uh, this film was also made for $3 million. Do you care to guess how much it uh, got at the box office? I, I have no clue. It was quite the disappointment. It made $4 million. Wow. More or less a break-even yeah. uh, scenario. Uh, filmed in Germany and released on the 12th, uh, or the 15th, rather, of December 1961. Uh, this film had to incorporate a uh, new uh, opening piece of dialogue because of some events that had happened in between the shooting of the film, which was shot on location in Germany, in Bavaria, uh, not Berlin. Uh, but uh, the Berlin Wall came up, and if you have a comedy set in Berlin that comes out in 1961, you are basically obligated to make some kind of reference to it. So at the very beginning of the film, uh, its star James Cagney gives an opening nar narration which states, On Sunday, August the 13th, 1961, the eyes of America were on the nation's capital, where Roger Maris was hitting home runs number 44 and 45 against the Senators. On that same day, without any warning... The East German communists sealed off the border between East and West Berlin. I only mention this to show the kind of people we're dealing with. Real shifty. So one, two, three, uh, you came in knowing nothing, nothing. about it, yeah. the title, and I had mentioned that it was set in Germany. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, you had continued your information fast as regarding yes. the Billy Wilder films. Yep, I, I totally went into it blank. The, of the three mo movies we've watched thus far, this is the bottom for me. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, probably it's, would it's be for good. me too. Of, of it's entertaining. Three. It is very witty, mm -hmm. which I think I said about Billy Wilder the first week, the first movie we watched. Um, it is just very, very witty, and his comedy is a very witty comedy, mm -hmm. and it's very quick. But much of this film was predictable. Yeah. So. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit more. So the basics of this plot is it stars uh, James Cagney. 
as C.R. Mac McNamara, who is an executive for the Coca-Cola company stationed in Berlin. He is assigned uh, by his boss, uh, Mr. Wendell P. Hazeltine, played by Howard St. John, to watch his 17-year-old daughter, Scarlett Hazeltine, played by Pamela Tiffin, uh, return appearance for us. Uh, Miss Tiffin was also in Harper. Harper. Uh, she would have been around 19 years old uh, when this film was made. As she was born in 1942. So they're supposed to watch her for two weeks, but it turns into two months. And during that time, she sneaks into East Berlin at night because she met a boy, a boy named Lud- Otto Ludwig Piffel, played by Horst Buchholz. And they end up uh, eloping. And this uh, is very complicating uh, for uh, Cagney and his career ambitions. Uh, he first decides, I got to get rid of this communist. So he uh, finagles to get him uh, arrested for being a, a, a spy, ultimately. And then finds out that Pamela Tiffin is preggers. And mm-hmm. now he's got to get... He also uh, was working to get their marriage annulled in addition to In the addition arrest. to that. So he has to now work to get Otto out of East German custody, get him back to West Germany, and remake him into an acceptable capitalist aristocratic son-in-law for his boss. And the film, uh, its score is actually by Andre Previn, who actually wrote that one song in uh, Harper. Yeah. But he is working largely off of a kind of a traditional piece of music known as the Sabre Dance, which we featured at the, the beginning of this broadcast. And that music really sets the tone for the pacing of this film. It is just rat-a-tat-tat, rat-a-tat-tat. And it continues to increase. It gets more manic the more the film goes on. And it's just, it's just crazy. It's, um, the, the last two films he had made, uh, Some Like It Hot and uh, The Apartment, were kind of known for having been very precisely structured films that were willing to take their time with humor, whereas this film was all about momentum. It was all about speed. I think it works, uh, but obviously audiences did not think it worked, as well as the other two films, which I acknowledge readily are superior films. But I think this is a pretty good film as well. Yeah. No, it's it's not a disappointing film. It's a solid film. I wondered, as as I thought about this film as we were watching it, I wondered how how it was received and how it did in the box office, because it it was predictable. It did feel familiar. It wasn't as new as some of the other Billy, Billy Wilder films mm, that we've yeah. watched. But maybe it was newer at the time that it came out. Maybe it was less familiar. You know, things mm. of that nature. I was trying to give credit, but apparently, maybe that was a common common theme running through yeah kind of kind of a criticism of the film now the film is not something new it's really a return to something old now the source material for the film and i'd be really curious to read this play to find out how much it's like this a 1929 hungarian play whose name i would just completely butcher so i'm not going to even try to pronounce it but you can Look it up, up if you're interested and then they took that source material and they kind of grafted onto it large portions of the plot of a film called Nanotchka, which is a, Billy Wilder co-wrote it, it was directed by Ernst Lubitsch, and it is also a film about a communist being seduced by the West in pursuit of love. And uh, it also contains three uh, uh, communist characters that huddle and have meetings and are bureaucrats that, that are replicated, I think, quite effectively here. Uh, this is a screwball comedy, and, and Wilder wrote screwball comedies in the 30s. Uh, other than Nanotchka, the one that comes to mind, 
uh, is Ball of Fire, which I would recommend for you. It's a Gary Cooper. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck film about uh, basically a retelling of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in uh, a weird way. Uh, so this film um, is loaded with its uh, contemporary references, its Cold War references, and that's really where the film, I guess if you're going to argue, is kind of contemporary and something new. That would be where it is because it it's a Cold War comedy. Yeah, and I don't think they were making a lot of Cold War comedies before. Maybe Doctor Probably Strange. Probably not. Um, and I'm curious to see how this would have been received in Germany and much of Europe. Apparently, the thing was banned in Finland until 1986. Really? Huh. I know. It's odd. I guess what uh, before we start talking about the cast in a little more detail, what uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, you said that. Uh, you liked it, but yeah, I I did enjoy it. It's it is fun. Like I said, it's extremely witty. Whenever you have dialogue that is that witty, it's hard not to enjoy the dialogue. I'm I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit. I would probably rate this on the ten star scale as a seven star film, mm-hmm. which is still a good film. Yeah, um, I'd probably still rate it three stars on the four star scale. Um, but it's just barely attaining that that three star. But it it would be hard to imagine giving this anything less than three mm. stars. But I'm just impressed by how consistently witty dialogue from in these Billy Wilder, yeah. Wilder films how just how consistently witty the dialogue is. It, it's hard to even choose something to quote because it's just jam packed. Yeah. Uh, with various witticisms. Uh, it's not anti-American. It's anti-Yankee. And where I come from, everything one is anti-Yankee. Yeah. Well, and this is kind of a different role for James Cagney, too. Yeah, so Cagney... Well, actually, kind of a different role for a lot of people in this yeah. film. So, so Cagney is really the one to talk about when you talk about this film, because he anchors it. He's, he's 50-plus percent yeah. of this film. And he, he was born in 1899. This came out in 1961, so it's been about 61, 62, when he, he made this thing. It exhausted him. Oh, yeah. uh, he had a hard time with the ratatat dialogue and how quickly he has to has to deliver some of this stuff uh he enjoyed making the film but he was so exhausted at the end he quit acting really he retired he did some occasional voice work and some public appearances but as far as on screen he would not be on screen again until 1981 he took a 20-year hiatus from filmmaking he came back for a part in the 1981 film ragtime which is based on an el doctro novel now, one of his uh, co-stars uh, in that movie was Pat O'Brien, who was a good friend of his. Pat O'Brien was also uh, James Cagney's co-star in the 1938 film Angels with Dirty Faces. <laughs> so he must have really liked working with Pat if he's yeah. willing to work with him from, uh, you know, from Roosevelt to Reagan. Yeah. So, again, I think he's quite funny in it. He does a really good job. He with, really yeah. anchors the whole thing. Yeah. And he's, he gives a consistent performance. It's very believable. Uh, the um, rest of the cast, of course, Pamela Tiffin is perfect for this part. Um, you've got Hurst Buschholz. Uh, Actually, real quick, while we're talking about that, Horst Buschholz, what, do you know much about his other filmography? Well, he's a German actor. And, uh, and the only other thing when I was briefly looking at this earlier that I recognized him from was one of my favorite films, Life is Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1998, where he plays the German doctor. Yeah, he also was in the uh, magnificent Magnificent Seven, which came out about a year 
or so before this. Yeah. So uh, I think there was a perception that he might be a big star, and he never really was, at least in the West. But he's basically second build here. However, Cagney hated him. Oh, really? Cagney reportedly said he was the only actor that I ever worked with that I ever openly despised. Wow. And apparently well, he was so just that a scene just, stealer. So yeah. that just wasn't that wasn't just the the film. That wasn't uh-huh. just an act for the yeah. film. Yeah. So they did not like each other. Or at least Cagney did not like him. He thought he was just always trying to steal his thunder, and was a little bit of a prima donna. He's perfect for this part, though, of yeah. this uh, radical communist who basically has his life stolen from him <laughs> yeah. by Cagney and has to rebake himself as an adopted lord. Uh, the, the last 40 or so minutes of the film, after they rescue him from uh, East Germany, is about a three... It takes place over roughly three hours, where they have three hours to remake him into a nobleman. Yeah. And... Everything is just goes so fast, and uh, it must have been exhausting to shoot. But the momentum of it is hilarious. Yeah, and that's I mean that's kind of the when you get into some of the uh, that's when you get into some of the slapstick humor, you know, and some of that type of stuff. That car scene getting to the airport, mm-hmm. you know, things of that nature. Or the, the car hat. chase in East Germany when the other car is falling apart is yeah. chasing them. The only other, uh, there's a lot of great character actors in this, uh, most of which you're not going to recognize except maybe their faces. Uh, The only other uh, actress in the film, uh, I guess of note, is Arlene Francis, who plays uh, McNamara's wife, as well as the actress who plays his uh, secretary and uh, adulterous uh, love interest, uh, the lady in the polka dots. Lizolette Pulver? Uh, Miss Pulver is now 90 years old. She would have been about 31, 32 yeah. uh, when she made this film. Uh, she's she's quite good, as well as the uh, click click the heels assistant. Uh, Schlemmer, played by Schlemmer. Hans Lothar. Yeah, he's good in it. There's a lot of uh, jokes about the German efficiency. The staff that always stands up whenever Cagney is going through their office and how that kind of annoys him. Yeah. Sitzen! Sitzen! Yeah, I guess we should just briefly talk about Arlene Francis. What did you think of her? I mean, she she's convincing in her role, mm-hmm. but outside of that, nothing really stood There's out. There's really nothing it. special. I mean, she she's fine, but she's kind of the weakest of the big four in yeah. this. Uh, she has a very specific thing she's supposed to do in the film. She has the B story. One of the most consistent themes motifs that Wilder continues to return to in his films is infidelity. Yeah. Particularly marital infidelity. It's in basically everything. It's hard to think of one of his films that that's not at least part of it. Wilder was married twice. I know almost nothing about the first marriage other than that his two kids came from that marriage. He didn't talk about it even in the authorized biography. It's it's hardly mentioned. Uh, his second marriage was to a woman who was an actress, basically an extra. Uh, she played the hat check girl in his Oscar-winning film, The Lost Weekend. Uh, he he was interviewed um, sometime after they made The Apartment, which of course ends with the, the two leads getting together, and is asked, do you, do you think that works out? Do they stay together? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it works out. And then decades later, he was asked about it again. He says, you know, when I wrote that, in my mind, that relationship doesn't work. But now I've been married to, I want to say her name was Audrey, for, for decades. I didn't think it would last. 
And it did. So I think maybe those two kids <laughs> worked out. They were married from 1949 until his death in 2002. Yeah. So he. So I think he perhaps got less cynical about marriage as time went on, but it feels like it must have left him pretty pissed off. Yeah. And that that motif carried on through the later work. It had to have come from somewhere. I'm thinking it's that seldom spoken first marriage. Oh, one of the other comments I wanted to make about this film. Uh, this is also becoming a theme through Billy Wilder films. Small sets. Small sets, yeah. There's really only, besides the car scenes, there's really only about three or four sets in the in this entire thing. They're, you know, they're the his entire home, film. very briefly, the McNamara home. The office. Uh, the office. The hotel, um, the Grand Hotel Potemkin. Yep. It's previously the Hotel Goebbels, which was previously the and Hotel the Bismarck. And the airport and the interrogation center. And that's about it. Yeah. And even then, the the interrogation center... It's tiny. ...probably was just a room inside the house. Mm -hmm. You know, or just a side off of the, the house. I'll bet it was part of the house set. Yeah. So... Yeah, his... Um, I don't know if there's really a lot I can say about the cinematography in Billy Wilder films. It's crisp. It's a nice black and white. He's got uh, some interest in... Like when they're showing the, the office right before Cagney's office. It's reminiscent of the apartment... Uh -huh. uh, the office in the insurance company, the way everything is so uniform and regimented. Again, the music is dominated in this uh, by the saber dance. Not a lot else I can say about Yankee that. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Dandy, which of course is a joke. There's a number yep. of in-jokes in the film. Yankee Doodle Dandy being one. And then when the military police officer does the Cagney impression to Cagney, it's another, another classic. Yeah. I'm laughing a little bit because you said you didn't have much to say about the cinematography. Mm-hmm. This uh, was nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography. <laughs> it actually was. That's funny. Um, but more specifically, Best Cinematography, Black and White. Yeah, that's funny. Yep. I mean, it looks good. good. It just didn't look particularly... There wasn't a particular flair to it. Yeah. But yeah, I was entertaining. that was entertaining because, of course, I look at what awards films have been nominated mm -hmm. for. and So I was aware that was its one Oscar nomination. So then you were like... Yeah, not much to say about the cinematography. And I was like, well, apparently someone else back then had a disagreement. Yeah. thought differently. So Now, you've not seen this film before, but you've seen a poster for this film before in another film that I know you like. Uh-huh. Bridge of Spies. Yep. There is a scene in which they uh, walk by a theater and playing is Ein, zwei, drei. Yeah. Uh, it's a very dated film. Kind of an interesting tie-in for that, but yeah. Uh, uh, it's a very period film. A lot of the humor would, would be lost on uh, newer audiences or audiences who aren't versed in, in the Cold War. You know, it is not a great film. I'd be basically with you as, as ter in terms of how I'd rate this. I would give this probably seven stars on a ten star and three on a three star scale. On a four star scale. Uh, on a four star yeah. scale, yeah. It's just, it for what it is, it's it's enjoyable. I probably This is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. I, th I think it's worth checking out, especially if you're interested uh, in the era, uh, especially if you're a Wilder completist or, or you're interested in the film that exhausted James Cagney into retirement. It's only about an hour and 49 minutes. Um, I would say it's worth your time. Yeah. A couple little trivia items. Joan Crawford, uh, apparently at the time that this came out, was on the board of Pepsi-Cola mm -hmm. or PepsiCo. She telephoned director Billy Wilder to protest the movie's Coca-Cola connection. Wilder then added a final scene in which James, Cag James Cagney buys four bottles of Coke from a vending machine. But the last bottle in the machine isn't Coke. It's another brand, Pepsi. Mm -hmm. 
the only other one I was going to mention is uh, after he learns that Scarlet is pregnant, James Cagney moans, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? This was Edward G. Robinson's famous line from Little Caesar, 1931. Mm-hmm. There's Billy Wilder weaves in a lot of things. It's that unless thick you, with references. Yeah, exactly. He does that pretty consistently through his films. This is fun. Interesting to see James Cagney in a, in a different role. Um, this, like I said before, this isn't the type of role you, you're used to seeing. James you used Cags. him principally as gangster, yeah, but secondarily as a musical man. Yep. Uh, but you don't generally think of him as somebody who's going to anchor a comic film, and I think he did so ably. Yeah. But yeah, good film. Much else to add? No. Okay. Well, I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate record a podcast. And returning to a. The post-game wrap-up. Kind of a... The post-show show, yeah. soda show. Kind of a fun theme, uh, tasting a different soda. This one was picked up by Nate. You want to introduce it? Yeah, it is called Zuberfis Cola Soda with an Altitude. And it looks like the flag of the state of Colorado. Yeah. This has become kind of a favorite of mine. It's part of my regular staple in the really? liquor store. I'm, in, I'm intrigued how a... Cola became part of your staple yeah. from the, the root beer store. Interesting sound as it opens. Pouring some. Same one. All right, we're good. Okay. Mm. Smell the soda? Kind of a light cola smell. Mm. Seems like kind of a... Not as bold as your traditional soda. Also has kind of that um, wintergreen flavor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that. That is definitely a different cola flavor than what you're used to. But it is a cola. I would describe it as uh, um, high-end RC. It's been too long since I've had an RC. I can't. It's like um, they had this, and, and maybe they still do in some places, but it's very difficult to find it anymore. The Pepsi 1893, which yeah. is like a high-end Pepsi, which yeah. I really liked. And I, I think of this as high-end RC Cola. Yeah. Oh, you know why it looks like the flag of, of Colorado? Made in Colorado. It's uh, from Durango. Indeed. The Durango Soda Company. Oh. I might have to try this again sometime. Yeah. Also good, as far as colas go, is something called Puma Cola, which is done by, what's that German-ish brand that makes all the flavored something? They have a ton of them there. But that's their version, that's their cola product, and that's also pretty good. But I think this is a little sweeter. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely sweet. Yeah. I mean, I'm a a Coke guy, Mm. and I like my colas to taste like Coke. Mm. So this is different. This is definitely a change of pace for me. But I'm not opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I was drinking Coke as we watched this movie. Indeed, that worked Which out. was entertaining since mm-hmm. it's the a plot point in the movie. The plot point, of course, being uh, he's trying to get into the Soviet market <laughs> behind the Iron Curtain. And yeah, he thinks he's going to get the London job, which then goes to, to his the communist. artificial <laughs> cinema. Artificial, yeah. Yeah. Well, fun. Anything else? I could tell you about a dream I had. Sure. My dreams are always interesting. You want that recorded? Sure, we can talk about this. So I had a dream where me and my brother were probably teenagers in the dream. 
and we're biking all around Boise. Uh-huh. And I don't remember a lot of it. I have a feeling we probably had various adventures. But in the part I remember, we had pulled into the parking lot of this little shopping complex near the mall. And I um, I'm, I could take you there if we're in, and show you exactly where this is. It's a complex anchored by a blimpy, and then it's got a bunch of other little businesses. So we're sitting there with our bikes, and we're resting, we're talking, kind of deciding what we're going to do. And all these kind of elderly people start showing up in mass and they start just filling up the parking lot and they're Christmas carols carolers even though it's like June or something in the dream and eventually there's so many old Christmas carolers in the parking lot that my brother and I is like let's get out of here <laughs> these these Christmas carols carolers are getting annoying is this mall on the west end of Boise well it's the only real mall in in Boise the town oh, square okay. yeah I have been there hmm I think I, I think I know where you're talking about, but maybe not. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I used to work uh, for a company right really close, so I would occasionally go to that Bloom Piece for lunch. Yeah. Yeah, it's not too far from my brother's house, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Fun stuff. Yeah. So that is one of my less entertaining dreams. 